Hello, and welcome to Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. I'm your host, Ethan Hansen. Today's episode is going to jump right into the news, covering what's been happening in the world of quantum computing since we last talked about it. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, it's finally here. The episode on Quantum Fight 2019. We're going to recap what's been going on with Google's claim of quantum supremacy, and IBM's claim that Google's claim is bunk. Has IBM done enough, or is it just put-up-or-shut-up time? That, and so, so, so much more, coming up on this episode. Before we dive into what you actually want to hear, uh, let me just say, sorry, it's been so long since I've recorded an episode. Uh, College is crazy, robotics is also crazy, my robotics season started just now in January. I've been doing college stuff since a while back. But that said, because of robotics, there's only going to be about one episode for February, um, between now and the end of February. It's going to be hopefully an interesting interview, but we'll see. I don't have any interviews currently lined up for then. And then after that, I'm taking March off, collecting myself. I'm going to get some material ready And then I'm going to start up season two of the podcast in April. It hasn't been a full year since I started, but I think that it's close enough and I'm ready to, I think, move on to season two with new music, transition music. That's the most common complaint I get, which is that my transition music is way louder than my actual talking. And yeah, I know that's a problem. There's not much I can do about that other than, I guess, talk louder. But yeah, it's going to be good stuff. Uh, I've got the new art already. I still need to find the new music. If you're interested or you know music that you like that would be good for those quick transitions between the episode intros and sort of the listener questions, that sort of stuff, let me know. I'm still looking for that. All right. We've got a lot to talk about since I have not done a podcast episode since October 20th of 2019. Uh, speaking of which, how's everybody's new decade going? That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a trip, going from 2019 to 2020. But yeah, I know that it's October 20th because I released that episode the day before IBM responded to Google's claim on quantum supremacy. They responded on the 21st. And I woke up, and I saw that blog post, and I went, oh no, I've just put out an episode, and it's already out of date. (laughs) But before we get to that, I don't want people to just listen to the first little bit of this and then, you know, click away. So we're going to talk about some other stuff first. First thing is the blanket of light. You probably saw this GIF going around. It's a very satisfying GIF of this like light lattice sort of getting wrapped up and it looks like a blanket of light and what's interesting about this i will read you the abstract of the paper Uh, as always papers are linked in the show notes but here is the abstract of the paper titled Deterministic Generation of a Two-Dimensional Cluster State. Abstract. 
Measurement-based quantum computation offers exponential computational speedup through simple measurements on a large entangled cluster state. We propose and demonstrate a scalable scheme for the generation of photonic cluster states suitable for universal measurement-based quantum computation. We exploit temporal multiplexing of squeezed light modes, delay loops, and beam splitter transformations to deterministically generate a cylindrical cluster state with a two-dimensional 2D topological structure as required for universal quantum information processing. The generated state consists of more than 30,000 entangled modes arranged in a cylindrical lattice with 24 modes on the circumference, defining the input register, and a length of 1,250 nodes defining the computation length. Our demonstrated source of two-dimensional cluster states can be combined with quantum error correction to enable fault-tolerant quantum computation. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while or you know anything about quantum computing, you know that that line, that last line there, talking about quantum error correction and fault-tolerant quantum computation is a big deal. That is the sort of the end goal of quantum computing. You want to be able to do all of your computations without any errors, hopefully, and get the right answer every time instead of what we have to do right now, which is run thousands of shots on a quantum computer and hope that the right answer comes out the majority of time uh, and potentially run more than thousands of shots if you want to make sure that you get the right answer eventually. So, yeah, I will have a link in the show notes. There's a fizz.org article that has the GIF of the rotating blanket of light that I'm staring at right now, and it is, it's gorgeous. I don't know how to describe it other than they have squeeze states that get connected into EPR states, which I believe stands for Einstein Polsky. I don't remember what EPR state stands for, but it is combination of three names, which then gets turned into a 1D cluster state. And then that all gets wrapped up into a 2D cluster state. It's such an interesting process that I don't understand fully, which is why I am not going into that much detail here. But they essentially are taking pulses of light. That's what they're talking about with the this blanket of light and uh, photonic cluster states. They're taking pulses of light and they're manipulating them in such ways so that they can get more than 30,000 of them all entangled together, which is fantastic. If you're able to independently control 30,000 of these for universal quantum computation, this is this sounds like a quantum circuit model, not something like quantum annealing. Um, like I said, I don't fully understand all of this, but I think it's incredibly fascinating that they're able that they're using light, which people have talked about for a while. The issue with light being that it interacts with everything. Uh, well, yeah, it interacts with everything around it, making it much harder to keep it from decohering. But the fact that they're saying they're source of two-dimensional cluster states can be combined with quantum error correction to enable fault-tolerant quantum computation. That, that could mean that they have a, a 
an interesting way that it could be enabled, or that could be a general statement of our demonstrated source of two-dimensional cluster states can be combined with quantum error correction to enable fault-tolerant quantum computation, just like you could do that with a superconducting, uh, uh, yeah, superconducting quantum bit qubit, and even though we don't have that yet, so there's a potentially a little extra hype there, but if nothing else, the GIF showing what is happening is fantastic, and you should absolutely, when this podcast is over, go take a look at that. All right, the next thing is Volkswagen. They have decided to team up with D-Wave, I believe. Yes, checking my notes. Um, yeah, they're using a D-Wave quantum computer that is supposedly calculating the fastest route for nine participating buses. So they're doing traffic optimization using a quantum computer. I'll read this first little excerpt and then give a bit of a, a summary and a breakdown of what exactly is going on here, why it matters. So, Volkswagen is launching in Libsyn the world's first pilot project for traffic optimization using a quantum computer. For this purpose, Volkswagen is participating with public transportation provider Keras to equip MAN buses with a traffic management system developed in-house. This system uses a D-Wave quantum computer and calculates the fastest route for each of the nine participating buses individually and almost in real time. This way, passengers' travel times will be significantly reduced, even during peak traffic hours, and traffic flow will be improved. Volkswagen is testing its system, which was developed jointly with the software specialists Hexad and PTV Group during the Web Summit Technology Conference in Libsyn from November 4 to 8. During the conference, buses will carry thousands of passengers through the city traffic in Libsyn. So what's interesting about this is that it is a major corporation that is taking an interest in quantum computing. This is something that we've known quantum computing can be good at for quite some time. The What is essentially the traveling salesman problem. Um, in this case, just how to, what's the fastest route between two points. What's interesting is that they aren't just optimizing the route once you get there. They are also doing some passenger number prediction, which is, I believe, that is not, um, the passenger number prediction is not on the quantum computing side. If I understand this correctly, the passenger number prediction is done using traditional classical means, and then once you have that number prediction, they use the quantum computer for the route optimization. It's an interesting concept, and I think that it, if it's if it's actually happening, that it would be a great step forward for quantum computing because, again, any amount of investment into the space from big companies like Volkswagen is necessarily, not necessarily, but most of the time is a good thing. Um, this can, this could be just a publicity stunt. Um, there's not really a way to know whether or not it's it, it's anything more than that. Um, D-Wave quantum computers, we've talked about the difference between quantum annealing and superconducting qubits in the past, um, or the, sorry, the 
yeah, the quantum annealer versus the gate, the circuit model. Um, and D-Wave uses quantum annealing, which means that they have an overhead. They can do the universe. They can do universal quantum computation, but they have an overhead. Um, and it seems to me that this is a this is more of a pub publicity stunt than anything. That being said, I think it is a very good publicity stunt in that it benefits something other than just publicity. Volkswagen is, of course, getting that publicity, as here I am talking about this whole <laughs> shindig. Um, but if they are able to show that these nine buses that they're using, quantum computation to calculate the fastest routes, have a significant speed up over the other buses, or that they're using, or even that if they're predicting or calculating the fastest route with other buses, if they can show that they are using less power, they're being more efficient, or it's faster to do it on quantum computers versus classical machines, then that would be some, that would be fantastic. Um, at this point, it sounds like they're just using quantum machines for the sake of using quantum machines, because those nine buses within one city in Libsyn can most likely, you know, that's not something that is showing quantum supremacy. That is not something that is outside of the realm of what can be done with a high-performance computing cluster. The question then becomes, are they using more or less power, and is it taking more or less time to prepare the quantum basis, the, yeah, the quantum basis states, and, you know, control your qubits, do the quantum computations, read out the qubits versus plugging it into a known classical algorithm that will get you the correct answer. That remains to be seen. Remains to be seen, but I think that we're we're moving in the right direction. This it's definitely a hopeful sign. All right, now what you've all been waiting for. Google's paper which I have already covered in quite a lot of detail. If you go back to my October of 2018 episode, you can see that. However, they that was me talking about the their most recent their most recent archive preprint. So, not an official one. They have released the official one. It is titled Quantum Supremacy Using a Programmable Superconducting Processor, and it is published in Nature. Um, there are some changes, but the vast majority of the paper has remained the same. It was published online the 23rd of October, so three days after I released that episode, which makes me go, ah, I wish I could have gotten it out. But let me read the abstract to you because it still claims all of those things. Remember, 23rd of October, is it was published two days after IBM released their blog post and paper saying that Google, you haven't actually reached quantum supremacy yet, which we'll talk about in a second here. Here's the abstract. The promise of quantum computers is that certain computational tasks might be executed explicitly exponentially faster on a quantum processor than on a classical processor. A fundamental challenge is to build a high-fidelity processor capable of running quantum algorithms in an exponentially large computational space. 
Here we report the use of a processor with programmable superconducting qubits to create quantum states on 53 qubits corresponding to a computational state space of dimension 2 to the 53, about 10 to the 16. Measurements from repeated experiments sample the resulting probability distribution, which we verify using classical simulations. Our Sycamore processor takes about 200 seconds to sample one instance of a quantum circuit a million times. Our benchmarks currently indicate that the equivalent task for a state-of-the-art classical supercomputer would take approximately 10,000 years. This dramatic increase in speed compared to all known classical algorithms is an experimental realization of quantum supremacy for this specific computational task, heralding a much-anticipated computing paradigm. Now let me go back, and you'll notice our benchmark, this, this dramatic increase in speed compared to all known classical algorithms is an experimental realization of quantum supremacy. So here's the question. Did they not realize what IBM realized and said that there were no known classical algorithms that could do this? Or did IBM mess up? Because those two things are mutually exclusive. Uh, that there's a dramatic increase in speed compared to all known classical algorithms. And IBM saying, here's a known classical algorithm that does not give you a dramatic increase in speed. Unless you are defining dramatic increase in speed as 200 seconds versus 10,000 years, uh, or sorry, rather, if you're defining dramatic increase in speed as 200 seconds versus 2 to 3 days, then it, I would still count that as dramatic increase. There are multiple ways to read that, and it is not defined explicitly in the slightest. So, I encourage you to read through the Google Quantum Supremacy paper. It is fairly readable if you have some background in quantum computing and you're fine with uh, just accepting the fact that some of the words are going to be Greek to you, unless you speak Greek, and then in which case they will be another language. <laughs> um, and yeah, it is, it's a very readable paper. It's very interesting. If you've already read the the preprint, you probably don't need to read this one because the changes were minor. Some things are a bit clearer in this one, I would say. For instance, their cross-entry benchmarking and how they're coming up with the number of 10,000 years is defined a bit more. Uh, but other than that, it's approximately the same, and if you would like a breakdown of the paper, go and listen to my episode titled Google's Quantum Supremacy. That's all I have to say on the Google side. Oh, actually, sorry, there is one more thing. In the show notes, there's a link to Google made a YouTube video about their quantum supremacy paper uh, and quantum supremacy in general. That is an interesting watch slash listen that if you don't want to read through the whole paper, that will definitely suffice and give you an idea into the sort of... Uh, the sort of advertising that Google is putting out for this this achievement. But IBM, of course, came back on the day after and said, Google, you're wrong. And this is, I find this hilarious because this is the closest thing you'll get to a, this is a, this is absolutely a nerd fight. Um, and if you think it's, you know, I know it's a nerd fight because it takes one to know one. Uh, 
IBM released a blog post on their IBM research blog saying on, quote, quantum supremacy. So they said on, and then in scare quotes, quantum supremacy, which is hilarious, and I love it. I will read you a little bit of their blog post, and then what has become tradition around here. Read a bit of what they wrote, and then break it down a bit. So, here is their blog post. Of course, links in the description. Quantum computers are starting to approach the limit of classical simulation, and it is important that we continue to benchmark progress and to ask how difficult they are to simulate. This is a fascinating scientific question. Recent advantages Advances in quantum computing have resulted in two 53-qubit processors, one from our group in IBM and a device described by Google in a paper published in the journal Nature. In the paper, it is argued that their device reached quantum supremacy and that a, quote, state-of-the-art supercomputer would require approximately 10,000 years to perform the equivalent task. Side note from me, can you feel the snark? Can Ah, man. We argue, oh, sorry, this is in, this is italicized. We argue that an ideal simulation of the same task can be performed on a classical system in 2.5 days and with far greater fidelity. This is in fact a conservative worst case scenario, and we expect that with additional refinements, the classical cost of this simulation can be further reduced. Wow! That is... <laughs> That is some snark. Um, I mean, I'm sure that it's all, it's not supposed to come across as snarky, but that's how I read it because it makes it so much more fun if you just imagine somebody writing this going, uh, this is in fact a conservative worst case estimate. Uh, <laughs> anyhow. What they have said is that what Google is doing is saying, okay, in order to run this in the best way possible, we need to store the entire state of the system in RAM. We need to have random access memory to the entire state of the quantum system, which is why, which is why this gets so big so fast, because the, the state spaces of a... Uh, n qubit system is 2 to the n. Um, excuse me. This is, yeah, so what IBM has said is, what if we didn't have to store it all in RAM? What if we could use your base, what's essentially your hard drives in order to store parts of the state? Uh, and what that allows them to do is it allows them to store way more and sorry this is i i am sort of reading the blog post i should stop that um <laughs> what yeah what they're saying is that they can use secondary storage to simulate up to 53 and 54 qubits and that even they could potentially do more at, faster than 10,000 years again they're saying they could do it in 2.5 days on the Summit supercomputer at Oak Ridge, Oak Ridge National Laboratories. However, remember that Google's Google's machine, their quantum machine, can do it in 200 seconds. 
So it's still a massive speed up, but it's not in the realm of quantum supremacy where a quantum computer can do something that a classical computer absolutely cannot. Um, what's another thing that's interesting is that they have said, sorry, let me find the exact quote. Yeah. Their classical simulation estimate of 10,000 years is based on the observation that the RAM memory requirement to store this full state vector in a Schrodinger-type simulation would be prohibitive, and thus one needs to resort to a Schrodinger-Feynman simulation that trades off space for time. Um, they are saying that... Oh, sorry, yes, here's the quote. However, classical computers have resources of their own such as a hierarchy of memories and high-precision computations in hardware, various software assets, and a vast knowledge base of algorithms, and it is important to leverage all such capabilities when comparing quantum to classical. So they're saying, RAM is great, but if we use something else, we can speed it up and make this way easier on ourselves. That's, yeah, their, their paper is titled Leveraging Secondary Storage to Simulate Deep 54-Qubit Sycamore Circuits. And it is only slightly less readable than Google's paper. Um, there is a link, of course, to the archive of the paper. Um, and it's an, it's an interesting read. It's, like I said, a little less readable, mainly because it is focusing on a, a very technical way of simulating this, these circuits. They have a proposed simulation strategy section that goes into that quite a lot, talking about how they're slicing up the circuit in order to spread out the computation, how sort, sort of like in the uh, Google's paper, how they have alighted circuits and split circuits. Similar to that sort of idea, but for simulations instead of running it on an actual machine. And then they have how they got all their estimated running times, which is, it, it makes a lot of sense how they get the, the, to, the total time of 2.5 days. What's interesting is the, that the vast majority of their time, looking at the table right now, so their total time is 2.549 days. Uh, sorry, that should, that should round to 2.55 days. Um, on a, on the Summit supercomputer at Oak Ridge. They're, the amount of time that they spend on disk in-out is 1.9 days. So over half of their time is spent on disk I.O., but they're still able to speed up significantly compared to 10,000 years, even with the amount of time that it takes you to read from the secondary storage. That's super interesting. Yeah, the, sorry, the percent, the total percent of time is almost 75%, 74.37%. I highly recommend going through and reading this. Oh, yeah, here's their 54, 20-cycle uh, 54-qubit sycamore circuit would take 5.8 days, and 65% of the total time is spent on disk in-out. So, again, it's... 
even though the secondary memory is slower, overall it gives you a speed up, which is something that's something that's interesting in that a lot of times you wouldn't think of it. In general, if you can store everything in memory, uh, sorry, in random access memory, you do it because it will speed up your program if you need to. Of course, if you don't need to, that doesn't necessarily make sense. But to speed up your program, the more that you can store, the closer to where you're performing the operations, the faster it's going to be. In this case, that's not true because you're dealing with such large state spaces and simulations. That's not something I necessarily would have thought of immediately. So, in conclusion there, I asked in the intro, is it put up or shut up time? It has been since October 21st when IBM said, Nuh-uh, Google, you didn't get quantum supremacy. <laughs> um, and that has been well over two and a half days. So, yeah, of course, the Summit Supercomputer at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, perhaps they don't have access to constantly. However, IBM does have access to some serious computational power that they could use to simulate this in far less than 10,000 years, according to them. Um, they have done a lot of work in proving, uh, or I should say, giving reasons for their estimate of two and a half days for the computations that Google ran. However, why haven't they shown it? It seems like, going back to talking about like the, the PR and the marketing aspect of this, it seems that it would be a fantastic article headline to say, uh, on, quote, quantum supremacy, and also, Google, you definitely didn't get it, because here are the results from us running it in two and a half days, or even in a week. Maybe it takes them longer than they thought, but that seems like it it could be worth the publicity stunt. Um, I, in the end, I don't know that it matters all that much. It's still a vast speed-up, and it shows that there are things uh, that uh, quantum computers can be used for successfully um, and give you speed-ups oh, and show it's things that a classical computer cannot. At this point, they're talking about using the algorithm that Google ran on the quantum computer for verifiably random numbers, uh, but that relies on the idea that the quantum computer can do it faster than classical computers can, uh, which it essentially means that you generate a random number using their random sycamore circuit. You get the number back, and then you can make sure that it came from this quantum computer because it would be impossible for all of the other uh, classical computers to do this, which seems sort of like, I don't know, it seems sort of like a cheat to me. It doesn't, it's not super useful, but it is technically a, a potentially useful application until you have another 53-qubit Sycamore processor out there. So in the end, this is, it's still an amazing achievement. Google's quantum supremacy, whether it is actually quantum supremacy or not, 
is a feat of engineering and physics and computer science, and it might not be as impressive as a speed up from 10,000 years to 200 seconds, but it is at the very least as impressive as a speed up from 2.55 days to 200 seconds, which is still incredible. And there's more to talk about. This episode is going to be a long one because Microsoft has announced their Microsoft Azure Quantum. So they are talking about Microsoft Azure is a cloud cloud solution from Microsoft. Azure Quantum is cloud-based quantum computing. So I will read you a bit of their product overview. Building, uh, sorry, build quantum solutions today. Tackling the world's toughest challenges requires computational power that exceeds that of today's most powerful computers. Where classical computing may take a billion years to address some of these challenging problems, quantum computing has the power to solve these problems in weeks, days, or even hours. Azure Quantum is is a diverse set of quantum services ranging from pre-built solutions to software and quantum hardware, providing developers and customers access to some of the most competitive quantum offerings on the market. And for developers, we've created the Open Source Quantum Development Kit, which has all of the tools and resources you need to start learning and building quantum solutions today. We talked about the Quantum Development Kit in previous episode about uh, all of the frameworks, their Quantum Development Kit, is one of those frameworks um, that was talked about. So they have partnerships. Um, Microsoft is, they talk about physical access. They are not creating their own qubits as of yet. They are still working on creating topological qubits, which work based on topological insulators. And that has not been shown to be a viable solution for even creating a single qubit at this point. So they have other industry partners, such as OneQubit, IonQ, Honeywell, and QCI. And what's interesting about that is that Microsoft is sort of doing the same thing that Amazon is doing, which we will get to later with Amazon Brockett. But anyhow, the Azure Quantum Stack is essentially everything you could ever need to do quantum computing. It's high-level algorithms. It's low-level hardware access. It's cloud computing, so you don't have to host it on-premises. It's it's an interesting offering. And again, it's another of those signs that quantum computing is moving into the mainstream. They already have customers They are working with Case Western Reserve University. They're working with Ford. They're working with Willis Towers Watson. Uh, They've got big names that have already signed on to be part of Microsoft Azure Quantum. Now, (laughs) they have a frequently asked questions uh, that includes, what's with the cat, Schrodinger's cat? Uh, as part of their logo, and it's a it's an interesting an interesting nod. Um, so yeah, it is open currently for preview. Um, you can become an early adopter and start playing around with quantum 
software and hardware from someone other than IBM um, for one of the first times ever. It It's something interesting in that there are... I, I can see it being viable in the future. There are already software solutions out there for many, many things, and yet people still use Microsoft Azure uh, because it makes it more convenient and it makes it easier and they make a they make an analysis, a cost benefit analysis that says the cost of hosting these things on my own on site and going through all of that work may be it may be fiscally less where we're spending less money up front to you know uh, or sorry less money in the long run to uh, buy them and maintain them ourselves however if we let microsoft do it, all that for us and we connect up to the their cloud services that will be less money in the long run because we're wasting less time on figuring out how to get all of this stuff up and running. And I think that is the power of these sort of hosted solutions where you have quantum computing companies that are working on the hardware, they specialize on the hardware, and then they sell it to Microsoft, and Microsoft sort of resells it to other customers with pretty packaging and nice algorithms and a library that has things like I want to do Grover search algorithm on this array. Give it the Grover, say, give it a function, Grover search, and then uh, give it as a parameter the array that you want to search, and it will tell you your answer, and that will give you, yeah, give it back to you in yeah, pi over 4 times square root of n time, <laughs> and allow you to have just a little bit of overhead via Microsoft stuff, but way less overhead via you having to develop those algorithms yourself. It's still going to be useful for companies to develop algorithms, and that's what Microsoft is working on, but more specialization where you have people working on just hardware, people working on just software, and people working on just applications of the software, I think is going to be a good thing moving forward. Now, that being said, let's talk about Amazon jumping into the quantum computing game with Amazon Rocket Bracket. I'm still unsure of how to pronounce that because I've never heard someone pronounce it. I've only seen it written. In any case, they're, they're creating an Amazon Web Services service that allows people to... Here are the benefits of... Amazon Brockett. They can get started quickly, experiment with multiple technologies, run hybrid quantum and classical algorithms, and get expert help. Um, they've actually teamed up with Caltech for this to design and run this service, which is fantastic. Caltech has the best and the brightest in the world. And yeah, uh, not sure where I was going with that. When they say experiment with multiple technologies, they are partnering with um, gate-based and quantum annealing superconductors. So they have, they have, I believe Rigetti is who they're partnering with. Uh, yes, they have it down here. Rigetti, IonQ, and D-Wave. So Rigetti, of course, makes superconducting qubits. 
Ion Q makes trapped ion quantum computers, and D-Wave makes quantum annealing superconducting qubits. Um, so what that allows you to that gives you way more options than saying I can only run Qiskit on IBM computers, which is no longer true, and we'll get to that later. But that is something to be aware of, that there are companies, large, large companies, such as Microsoft and Amazon, jumping into the quantum computing market, not necessarily making their own quantum computers yet. Um, Microsoft, as far as I know, is still working on topological qubits, but they are, they're packaging quantum computers that other people have made and using their knowledge of creating web services like Azure and AWS in order to make it more accessible for more people to use it. And that creates a sort of positive feedback loop where more people use it, more people get benefit from it, more people can invest more money into it, which means that they can create more services like this, which means that more people can use it, which means more people can, and so on and so forth. And I think that that is, again, a very good sign that we are moving into a world full of quantum computing for everyone to use, not just big companies. Because at this point, it's almost like 1950s, where it seemed that no one would ever use, no one would ever have a personal computer inside of your house. Computers take up you know, full buildings and they require physicists to work on and you've got to have a very specialized degree and now I have a phone in my pocket that has more power than those huge building-sized computers. I think that something like that could happen with quantum and the more that we have large companies like this, like Amazon and Microsoft investing in that, the closer we get. So, like I said, Qiskit is not just for IBM. Uh, Qiskit 0.13 now supports multiple architectures, including trapped ion qubits. Um, so what that means is that they compile it differently. So you write the same Qiskit. You write your functions with Hadamard gates and your controlled knots and all of that. You write that in Qiskit normally, and then you select what backend you want, and they will they will find they will find out what backend you want. They will use that to inform which how they're going to compile it so that you can run it on the back end of IBM's quantum annealing, or sorry, not quantum annealing, quantum gate model superconducting qubits, or you can run it on the trapped ion system. And that's super cool because that means that Qiskit is now even more versatile than it has been in the past. That means that more people could potentially use it in the future. And I think that, again, this goes back to it's it's all moving towards more people being able to use more quantum computing on more devices for more purposes. And in this case, more is better. I think that that's something, there's not much to say about this other than it's interesting that um, 
if you want to look into the back end of how all of this works, that's super interesting. Uh, not something that I want to dive into in a news episode, but Qiskit 0.13 now has support for mul multiple architectures. You can select whether you want to run on superconducting gate model or trapped ion qubits. All right, we're moving along here. Speaking of big people, big companies jumping into quantum computing, Intel has been working on quantum computing for a while. However, they've been kind of quiet about it. Um, they have now introduced Horse Ridge, uh, saying that they want to enable commercially viable quantum computers. So Horse Ridge is not a quantum computer. It is not a computing chip. It is a cryogenic control chip. Um, so it's not... It does not allow you, it, sorry, it does not have the qubits itself. It allows for control of multiple qubits and sets a clear path towards scaling larger systems. What they say about why it matters. In the race to realize the power and potential of quantum computers, researchers have focused extensively on qubit fabrication, building test chips that demonstrate the exponential power of a small number of qubits operating in superposition. However, in early quantum hardware developments, including design, testing, and characterization of Intel silicon spin qubit and superconducting qubit systems, Intel identified a major bottleneck toward realizing commercial-scale quantum computing, interconnects, and control electronics. With Horseridge, Intel introduces an elegant solution that will enable the company to control multiple qubits and set a clear path toward scaling future systems to larger qubit counts, a major milestone on the path to quantum practicality. So, this is something that they worked on in-house, and now they're sort of showing it off to the public. The Horseridge is interesting in that they are, they're thinking ahead to the future. Uh, they are not just saying, okay, how many qubits can we cram onto a chip right now? They're saying, hold on, we want to cram more qubits onto a chip right now, but also five years down the road. How can we do that so that it is scalable, so that we can cram more and more qubits onto a chip? They're looking ahead, uh, not just at for instance, going back to the example of 1950s quantum uh, computing, they are, they're not just looking at how many transistors can I solder onto a chip. They're looking at how can I make it so that I can easily control all of these different transistors um, so that they can work together to create something more than the sum of the parts. So... There's a link, of course, in the show notes to Intel's newsroom announcement of Horse Ridge. Um, they talk about, down below, all of the interesting, more technical details about this. Um, what's in, So, my home state, Oregon, uh, has Horse Ridge is one of the coldest places in Oregon, and Intel's I, Intel's Hillsboro campus is what is working on quantum computing, or sorry, these quantum computers, and so they named it after Horse Ridge in Oregon. Uh, that's that's pretty cool. Puts a smile on my face. I think the big takeaway there is, again, 
two things. One, another another big company moving into quantum computing, investing more money into quantum computing, um, betting that it is going to pay off at some point in the future because I would be uh, I would be extremely surprised if they said that Horse Ridge is currently commercially viable um, and making them money. Um, and the other thing is that they are they're expanding not just now, but they are looking forward into the future, thinking about how can we scale this because this is not they don't view this as a passing fad. Um, some people have said quantum computing is a passing fad. We'll find new and better quantum algorithms for or classical algorithms to do all the things that quantum computers can do faster. But these companies obviously don't think that, and that is certainly hopeful for the future of quantum computing. All right, I got one last thing, which is pretty recently... IBM announced that they have reached quantum volume 32 with their Raleigh quantum machine. So, quantum vol- what is quantum volume? Quantum volume is a measurement system that IBM created because you can't compare direct qubit counts. If you compare direct qubit counts, you have D-Wave with their 2,000 quantum, uh, they've got their 2,000 qubit machine, you're comparing that to IBM's 28-qubit machine, Raleigh, and you go, hold on, why in the world does anybody even try with IBM if D-Wave exists? Um, the reason there is because they have two different architectures, and they have different amounts of qubit interconnect, and they have different amounts of decoherence, and all of those things. Uh, there are many, many factors that go into quantum volume, um, and that is what determines sort of how good a computer is overall. It would be like if you took a, your classical machine at home and you made a single number that talked about everything from processor speed to amount of RAM to um, amount of secondary storage in your hard drive. And you combined all that together and you got a single number that... Um, weighted each of those things a little bit differently. That's sort of what quantum com- quantum volume is to quantum computing. So they're, they have now reached a quantum volume of 32. Which, so starting in 2017, they had Tenerife, and then Tokyo, and then Johannesburg, and now Raleigh. They have now said Raleigh has reached a quantum volume of 32, which is double Johannesburg from last year in 2019. They are saying that they have, uh, yeah, that they have, they have shown, you know, this, this idea that Moore's law can live on, you know, a thousand generations live in you now. Uh, Moore's law can live on in quantum computing if we can double quantum volume every year. So far, they've been doing that. They have they have doubled their quantum volume from these last two years, and if they can continue that into the future, then quantum computing will become commercially and just practically viable faster than I think anyone would anyone is predicting 
right now. Well, maybe not anyone. There are some people who are predicting some crazy things, but in general, what most people are predicting. So again, I'm not going to talk too much about Raleigh and their 28 qubit with quantum volume of 32, um, but suffice it to say, it is 28 qubits is uh, not a small amount. You know, it's about half of what Google had on their um, bristlecone chip, or sorry, their Sycamore chip. Um, but it is—it's a step in the right direction, and it is sorry. It's cool that it's that they have a 28 qubit chip, and that they can produce more than one of them. I believe that they have plans for multiple 28 qubit chips. The, they're just focusing on Raleigh because it has demonstrated quantum volume 32. And what this means is that it has gotten better, faster, stronger. And as that continues into the future, you're going to see more and more ability to use quantum computers practically. So they have a whole section about looking into the decade ahead. This is what they have predicted for the 2020s. The next 10 years will be the decade of quantum systems and the emergence of a real hardware ecosystem that will provide the foundation for improving coherence, gates, stability, cryogenics components, integration, and packaging. Only with a systems development mindset uh, will we, as a community, see quantum advantage in the 2020s. I think that, I think that they're, they're onto something there with a system development mindset. There, you can't just focus on one part of a quantum computer, which is why I, I like quantum volume, or at least the concept of creating a number that is fairly easy to look at, if not to understand where exactly it comes from. But you can look at a single number and see what progress are we making over time. And that number incorporates a system development's mindset in that you have to work on qubit interconnect and decoherence times and fidelity and um, everything from you know how fast can you control qubits to all of those things in order to improve your quantum volume. I think that hopefully quantum volume continues to increase at that exponential rate, doubling every year, which is you know better than Moore's law did. Moore's law doubled every two years, and I think that if that continues, we will reach the point where quantum computing is maybe not ubiquitous, but more common than it is right now, where we're able to use it to solve real-world problems, where solving traffic in a city won't just be a publicity stunt, but rather something that is done on a regular basis with a quantum computer so that we can reduce the amount that people have to drive, the amount of time stuck in traffic, the amount of pollution put out into the atmosphere by all of these cars. And as quantum computing becomes more mainstream, we're able to solve even more problems like that. That is my hope for the 2020s. And I think that that is an excellent goal and an excellent way to end this segment of the podcast. All right, we actually have some listener corrections this time, finally. So 
uh, I asked if I had missed any frameworks in the last episode's discussion of them. Uh, turns out the people at Xanadu AI have a fan in Amira Abbas, as she pointed out that I missed their frameworks, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. So to remedy this a bit, I'll do a breakdown of Strawberry Fields right now. From the honestly gorgeous website for Penny Lane, Penny Lane is, quote, a cross-platform Python library for quantum machine learning, automatic differentiation, and optimization of hybrid cla quantum classical computations. Strawberry Fields, on the other hand, is, quote, a full-stack Python library for designing, simulating, and optimizing continuous variable quantum optical circuits. First, let's define the difference between Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, both of which are open source libraries from Xanadu AI. Strawberry Fields is the base level language for Xanadu AI's machines, sort of like a Qiskit for IBM or a PyQuil for Rigetti. Penny Lane is a wrapper or library that goes on top of that and allows for a very nice interface with the quantum hardware. Penny Lane is specifically focused on quantum machine learning, which is pretty cool, but it's not a super general, super general topic or application for them to be using it on. Um, and I actually got so that's that's that for Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. Um, that I actually got a lot of feedback around this episode. Um, Arthur Pessa uh, replied to me on Twitter in order to bring Yao to my attention. He said to do fast simulations, for instance, for variational algorithms where you need to run the circuit many times, Yao is the best. Here's the blurb for Yao. Yao is an open source framework that aims to empower quantum information research with software tools. It is Quantum Software 2.0 and Quantum Computation Education. We are in an early release beta, expect some adventures and rough edges. So that reminds me of Google's CERC, which says expect breaking changes. But unlike all the other mentioned libraries, packages, and frameworks, Yao is a framework built in and for the Julia language. Uh, that's part of why it can claim to be the fastest framework out there. And if you look at, they have, I've got a link in the show notes to this. They've got a comparison from Yao to other uh, platforms like Qiskit, PyQuil, that sort of stuff. Uh, and Yao is consistently one of, if not the fastest uh, simulators out there. So, now this one isn't a correction from a listener, but something I wanted to share because the interface is very pleasing in my opinion. QTech has a their Quantum Inspire SDK online, which again link in the show notes. Um, but it's just gorgeous and, in my opinion, very well designed. Um, shout out to the people at QTech for making something that is so visually appealing as well as it appears to be actually useful. You can use it to actually program quantum computers, uh, at the very least simulate and learn about quantum computers. And finally, links in the show notes to lists of quantum computing frameworks, languages, and simulators from Quantiki.org and the Quantum Open Source Foundation, aka QOSF. Now, these apparently I just missed as I was looking up quantum computing frameworks and languages and simulators, but there are these are more complete than any podcast I could ever make. Um, I suppose I could just read off those lists, which would then make my podcast just as complete as they are. In any case, there are a lot in there. Um, if you want to go back and listen to my episode on frameworks, which is the previous episode, 
please do so. That gives you a good overview of some of the most common frameworks and languages. But if you want a just a full list of all of the ones out there, check out those links for Quantiki and QOSF. I got an interesting question on Twitter from Agent Anakin AI, who asked if there is such a thing as distributed quantum computing. This is something I hadn't ever heard of, and my first reaction was, it doesn't really make sense, because the whole point of quantum computing is that you have this dense interconnect between the qubits, allowing you to have such a greater state space where you can perform calculations. However, I thought I should look into it a bit. What I found was surprising, in that distributed quantum computing is a theoretical possibility and that there has been a paper published about it. According to phys.org, a network of small quantum computers can implement any quantum algorithm with just a small overhead. When they say small overhead, they really mean it. Looking at the paper, their overhead is O of square root of n poly, sorry, times poly log n. So that's a fantastic overhead. That's uh, very, very small. And if you're able to combine multiple quantum computers into, or multiple quantum processors into that, that overhead could be worth it for the ease of making multiple chips that have a lesser interconnect and thus a smaller chance that uh, errors in the qubits will propagate. There's a link in the show notes, as always, to, phys to the phys.org article, as well as the PDF of their paper that outlines in more detail exactly how this could work. Please reach out to me on Twitter, at one Ethan Hansen. I know this was a long episode with some rambling, and it was light on technical details. Let me know what I can do better or different so that I can make these changes for Season 2. Please also reach out if you found a mistake in the podcast so I can make a correction update in the next episode. That's always helpful. Or just reach out to tell me how much you like the podcast because that always puts a smile on my face. Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with thequantumdaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out thequantumdaily.com, which I have linked to in the show notes. Thank you so much for sticking with me through this whole long episode, and I'll have another episode out when I get to it. <laughs>